Adapted reading from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. When the word of God came to Jeremiah, that's what God said. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. Before I saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. A prophet to the nation, it, that is what I had in mind in you. But I said, hold it, Master God, look at me. I don't know anything, I'm only a child. God told me, don't say I'm only a child. I'll tell you where to go, and you'll go there. I'll tell you what to say, and you'll say it. Don't be afraid of a soul. I'll be right there. Looking after you, God, God's decree. God reached out and touched my mouth and said, Look, I have just put my words in your mouth. See what I have done? I have given you a job to do among the nations and governments. Your job is to pull down, pull up and tear down, take apart and demolish, then start over building and planting. Hebrews 12, 18-29 You have come... You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking for Speaking, for if they do not escape when they refuse the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that we cannot be, shake, cannot be shaken, so what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our third scripture reading this morning comes from the word from the, from the prophet Isaiah. I'll be reading from the second chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthless things, and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness? in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives. I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. 
But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. <clears throat> Cross to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there ever has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. May the Lord add his richest blessing to these readings of his holy scripture. Amen. I have a question for you as I begin. Do we have any Seinfeld fans left, or have they all died off? Anyone? A few hands out there. Okay. Uh, even if you're uh, not a big fan of the show, maybe you remember the episode where Jerry and his friends go into the Bizarro world. Uh, I don't know if you remember that at all. So Bizarro world, it comes out of Superman comic books. In Bizarro world, Superman discovers there's like a counter Superman. So in Seinfeld, Seinfeld and his friends discovered that there's four other people out there who are almost identical except that they're opposite in many ways. Not a photocopy, but like a, a photo negative of each other. I, I ask this because I've discovered there's apparently a David slash Dave Chisholm bizarro world. I'm just finding out about this. I was cruising through Facebook, and I stumbled across something that took me by shock. There he is up. He lives in, I think, Indiana, a Dave Chisholm. So we both share the first name, although he calls himself Dave, and I'm usually called David. But both of our last names are spelled exactly alike, C-H-I-S-H-A-M, which is a unique spelling. And Dave Chisholm, as it turns out, a lot of similarities. He plays guitar. I play guitar. He wears glasses. I wear glasses. He wears a beard. I've worn a beard for years and years. But this is where the bizarro world begins to split us apart. I discovered Dave Chisholm in Indiana because Dave Chisholm has a band. It is called the Dave Chisholm Band. And Dave Chisholm in Indiana is the guitarist and lead singer in the Dave Chisholm band. Now, right there, I'm starting to worry because that was a reality I wanted when I was in late high school and early college. I played guitar. I wanted to be a rock guitarist in a Christian band. 
It gets weirder, though. The band picture is there on the page. I figured out who Dave Chisholm is in the picture. He's taller than everybody else in his band. He's young, good-looking. He has a full head of hair. The other Dave Chisholm is getting the better end of this shared reality, I have to say. I'm really wondering, am I the reality and he's bizarro, or is he the reality and I'm bizarro, David? I don't know. It is a strange world I found myself in. Seriously, though, I think from time to time, we have probably all had that sense. News channels start crackling about some terrible event or something from the world of politics or something in our lives happens and we just, we feel like we're in a bizarro world. Up is down, down is up, left is right, north is south. Things have gotten all twisted around. This in many ways is the world that the prophet Jeremiah was born into. A world that had gotten completely turned upside down. We're going to start a series on Jeremiah. This will be a three-week series. I just want to ask this morning as we begin, has anybody in the last 10 years studied Jeremiah closely? Anyone at all? I mean, I lost, all right, Tip and Beverly. There there are two token Bible students here. No, seriously, I haven't looked at Jeremiah, I think, since I was in Bible college very closely. We just don't get to this prophet very often. We'll talk about Isaiah quite a bit during the Christmas season, but Jeremiah has slipped under our radar. But here's the thing. Jeremiah is the longest of all the prophets. Isaiah has more chapters, but Jeremiah has more words. What's more, Jeremiah tells us more about himself and his struggles than any other prophet. We know more about Jeremiah's life than any other prophet in the Scriptures. So I want to begin by introducing him to you this morning. And As we do so, we notice from the very beginning of the book, Jeremiah was born into a priestly family. He was a part of the tribe of Levites. Levites were the ones who served in the temple in Jerusalem. Not only was Jeremiah born into a priestly family, his father, Hilkiah, was the chief priest in Jerusalem. In many ways, he was kind of a a preacher's kid, if you will. This is where I get a little nervous, because my experience with preacher's kids is they usually go one of two ways. Either they stay on the straight and narrow, or they get in a lot of trouble. My own child, I'm anxious about which direction. Jeremiah, interestingly enough, he ends up doing both of those things. He stays on the straight and narrow, and yet we see throughout his life he gets in trouble time and time again. Jeremiah was also born at a critical moment in his nation's history. Jeremiah lived in the land of Judah. Judah is what was left over from Israel after Israel had been split in two. And my perception, my memory, 
what was happening in Jeremiah's time is the people of Judah, these were the people who were people of the Ten Commandments. People of Judah had gotten a little loose around the edges when it came to how they observed God's law. There was one law in particular that they tended to break, and that was worshiping other gods. But my perception was this, this kind of happened out away from Jerusalem. This is, these are the things that were done up on the hilltops out in country isolated areas. As I began the study of Jeremiah, I looked back at what was happening in Jeremiah's time. And it didn't take long before I discovered Jeremiah was living in a world that was completely bizarre, completely turned upside down from what we would expect to be happening amongst God's people, the people who received the Ten Commandments. What was happening was unrecognizable. A few weeks back, I was reading in the New York Times an article about some things that are happening in cathedrals, especially in England. A lot of those old stone cathedrals, five, six, seven hundred years old, these great stone edifices, the churches are really suffering over there. Anglican church is trying to pull people in, but for years they've been leaving the churches, and of course, they're also trying to cover the bills on these stone structures as well. These buildings are very expensive. So there's one church, uh, it was in Norwich, tried something interesting. They put a 55-foot-tall corkscrew slide, not on the front lawn, right in the middle of the sanctuary. And for about $3, you can climb to the top of this 55-foot-tall corkscrew slide, and you can look at some of the artwork, and then you can take this fun ride down and land right back in the sanctuary. In fact, some Sunday mornings, apparently the preacher delivers his sermon from the top of this 55-foot-tall corkscrew slide. What do you think, folks? Might be a good thing for us. We got some space up here. There's another church somewhere else in England put in a putt-putt golf course. Putt-putt golf course. Not on some lawn that wasn't being used, no. They took all the pews, took all the chairs out, put out astroturf and spread it out right in the middle of the sanctuary. You can sit there and Worship God and sink a hole in one at the same time. Harvey might like that. Harvey might like that. The rest of us are probably thinking, that is bizarre. I realize you want to keep things up to date in church, but that is just strange. The good news is I'm reading about these churches in England. These are temporary, uh, temp temporary installations. They're not permanent things. But as I was reading about the temple in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's time, that thing had turned into a carnival atmosphere 24-7, 365. Well, the interesting thing about the prophet Jeremiah, 
about six years into his career as a prophet, if you will, his word hits home. People start listening to what he's saying. He's calling people back from their idolatrous ways. He's calling people back from corruption. Jeremiah's father, Hilkiah, is in the temple one day, finds a scroll of the law, dusty and forgotten about. And he begins reading this, and he discovers in that scroll that if God's people are not faithful to God, some bad things are going to come about. So Hilkiah, high priest, takes it to King Josiah. Josiah begins to read through the law. And he compares what that says to what he sees in his kingdom. And he sees these things are not matching up. Changes need to be made. We need to clean house. And we need to clean house quickly. Prophets like Jeremiah are telling us that doom is around the corner if we don't make some changes here. The book of 2 Kings, chapter 23, we get a whole list the changes that Josiah has to make in order to clean house. Now, I want you to pay attention. In Sunday school this morning, we heard about King Solomon building 700 little temples to other gods. Listen to what is happening in the temple itself in Jerusalem. The first thing Josiah did as he's cleaning house here, he removed the vessels dedicated to Baal, to Asherah, and to the host of heaven out of the temple. The temple itself had become a pagan worship center. He deposed idol-worshiping priests whom the kings of Judah had been appointing for generation upon generation. Kings were appointing the priests to these false gods. He removed the idols and altars of Asherah and Baal. He tore down, this was an interesting one, he tore down the houses for the male temple prostitutes that were working in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem had become a brothel. This is shocking stuff. He tore down the idol worship centers in numerous other cities one of the ones he tore down was the altar to the king, or not, not the king, the altar to the god Molech. Let's all say that together, Molech. It even it just feels bad in your mouth, doesn't it? Molech. Here's the thing, that, that god Molech, he was depicted as, a, as like a big bull with these great horns. The worship of Molech wasn't done just with animal sacrifice. It was done with human sacrifice. Molech's preference was for children to be killed on his altar. That was happening in the land of Judah in Jeremiah's time. It is no wonder when we read through Jeremiah 
And we hear those prophecies of wrath and anger and doom. We can understand why God was so upset. This was terrible. This was not at all what God intended. It wasn't just that the people of Judah were dallying around on the edges. They were investing themselves and their ethics, even offering their children to these false gods. One last thing Josiah did. He declared that the Passover should be observed. You should all know the, the Passover. This is kind of the great independence celebration for God's people. Celebration of God leading them out of Egypt into freedom and onto the promised land one day. Scriptures say this was the first Passover that had been observed since the time of the Judges. If you know your chronology, that's about 700 years gap in observing the Passover. Jeremiah's people had completely lost their story, forgotten where they had come from forgotten God's law, and they were off chasing after whatever whim came along. Beginning to realize how corrupt this was, how bizarre the world was around Jeremiah, we begin to see the weight upon his shoulders when he was only a boy, maybe a teenager. God begins to speak to him. Jeremiah you have to talk to my people. Jeremiah, you have to stand up and say something. Jeremiah, I'm putting my word in your mouth. You have to stand up. Jeremiah raises the objection. Wait a minute. Lord God, I'm only a boy. I can't do this. This burden is too great. God says, do not say you are only a boy. You're going to go where I send you. You're going to speak what I tell you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. As we try to boil down the message of Jeremiah, is there a thread that runs all the way through? I think right there is where we hit that key theme. Whom do you trust? Who are you going to rely upon? It's a question that the people of Judah have to answer. All of that stuff that was happening in the temple, it didn't just come about one day. All of that worship of these other idols, this was about political alliances. Little Judah, it was a small land surrounded by many other smaller nations. Empires were coming and going all around it. And the kings of Judah felt like if we are going to secure our place in the world, we need to make some friends, we need to make some allies. But the problem is, in the ancient world, part of the way you made allies with other countries was you shared gods. I'll worship your God if you worship my God. 
all that stuff happening in the temple. It was about the kings of Judah relying on their own political abilities to secure their place, turning their trust toward allies who often turned on a dime, not trusting in God. Whom do you trust? It's a question for the people of Judah. It's a question for Jeremiah as well. Here he is, a young man. God's word comes upon him. He's going to see some of the worst of his prophecies come true. And the thing is, he didn't like these prophecies. He didn't want to share them. Some ministers, when they get into the the fire and brimstone, they like to lean into those sermons. It feels good, preaching about destruction. Get your energy up, get you moving, get you going, get you fired up. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. These prophecies that God was giving to him, he didn't like them at all. At one point, he says, I'm not going to mention the Lord anymore. I don't want to speak His name, but he says, but then within me there's something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I can't hold back. I have to share this word that God has given to me. Chapter 12, Jeremiah lays out his complaint before the Lord. Lord, I'm doing Your work. I'm preaching your word, I'm calling people to repentance, but what do I see? The evil prosper, the treacherous thrive. Even his own family are sabotaging him. People are persecuting him, and Jeremiah is suffering. God says, Jeremiah, if you've become weary just with this foot race with men, how are you going to run with horses? If you become weary at this level, we have a long ways to go. Trust me. Trust me. I'm going to be there. Whom do you trust? It's a question for Judah. It's a question for Jeremiah. It's a question for all of us this morning as well. We heard from the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews is a very interesting letter to the church. It was written at a time when a lot of Christians who had come to faith, believed in Jesus, were gathered together with the church, began turning their backs on this faith. Hebrews reminds those who are thinking about just slipping out the back door. You you, you haven't been brought to Mount Sinai. You haven't been brought out into some territory. It's not about clouds and thunder and lightning and terrifying things that you might see out in the wilderness. He says, through faith, You have been brought into the very throne room of God. You have been gathered with angels and all the hosts. 
You have been gathered into God's presence. You have been cleansed with Christ's blood. Don't turn your back on that. Don't let go so easily. Trust in the Lord. This morning, I know we're all heartbroken. I know many of us, as we're listening, what's on our mind right now is that one of our best friends, Jeff Weeks, is not with us any longer. And I was thinking about Jeff and his personality and the time that I spent with him. Jeff just had this unflappable character about him. Y'all know what I'm... You know what I'm talking about? Do you see that? One of the earliest stories I remember about Jeff is he was up here by himself clearing an overgrown area over here on the, the side of the parking lot. There were some old tree stumps in there, old dead tree stumps. He was out there working on them with his chainsaw. And I guess that there had been an old fence line or something through there, maybe some barbed wire. Anyways, his Chainsaw caught on something, kicked back, and it caught him right across the kneecap. And it was bad. I only heard about this later. But the reaction and what he did, it was characteristic. The first thing that Jeff did was he didn't call Charles. <laughs> he called his son Brad. Time I've spent with Brad. Brad and Jeff, they're, they're kind of cut out of the same cloth. Brad's pretty unflappable from what I've seen. They got Jeff kind of bandaged up and headed to the emergency room, and only then did Jeff call Charles and say, before I say anything else, just know I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And then went on and told him the story about what had happened. Just unflappable in all of that. Remember, it was uh, about a year ago, we bought a warming oven for the Fellowship Hall. And we were so happy with this thing because potluck meals, you probably saw it out there last week, potluck meals are just a lot easier when you have more space to keep food warm. And then you can bring it out and you're not bringing out all these kind of cold dishes. It's, it's, this oven was just, we were so happy to have it. Unfortunately, the first time we used it, when we put it back in the storage closet, we didn't double-check that it was empty, and some food was left in it. And when we got to the closet about a month and a half, two months later, oh, it was bad. It was really bad. I was, I was frazzled. I was running around. Here we were, you know. Yet, uh, just so happy to use this thing, and now it's full of just uh, whoa, terrible stuff. Now, don't worry, we've cleaned it out. It's all good. We can use it. It's all good. But that day, I was just frazzled to the end. Jeff was the one who actually discovered it as he was rolling the, uh, rolling the cart out. The door opened a little bit, and he was like, ooh, that's not good. But in all of this, I'm running around wondering how this happened, what to do about it. Jeff's attitude was, yeah, that happened. It smells bad. 
We need to clean it up. We'll be okay. We'll keep going here. It's all right. And over this last year or so, since he's been dealing with that illness, these past three weeks when he was in the hospital, I never heard him complain. I never heard him blame God. I never heard him say, I'm just ready to throw in the towel. The last day I got to see him was his last really good day. That was the morning that we got good reports, his blood count was coming up, and it, it looked like we had finally found that corner to turn. Things would get better from there. The thing is, even at that point, Jeff knew he had probably another month in the hospital and a major surgery on top of the three weeks that he's already been in the hospital. As I sat with him that day, he was all smiles and jokes. He didn't say, I'm tired of this place. He didn't say, I've been here three weeks of Another month to go, if it was me, I'd probably be kind of grumpy about the situation, even if I did get some good news. But no, he didn't complain. He just took each day step by step, and he turned it over to the Lord and trusted God to the end. I think we can learn a lot from Jeff, that part of his character. We can learn a lot from Jeremiah and the trust that he showed as well. Jeremiah, I will admit, he was not as unflappable as Jeff is. Jeremiah could get upset and scared and a little frazzled, but still, despite fiercest opposition, despite dire circumstance, each day he trusted God's protection. And what we will finally see is that Jeremiah, the word that he finally leaves with us. It's not a message of despair. It's a message of incredible hope. Jeremiah becomes the prophet of the covenant that we celebrate here today with our Lord Jesus. Stick with us the next couple of weeks. We're going to continue to walk with Jeremiah. I know that you'll be blessed. I know that you'll hear God's word then and God's word today as well. Amen? As we gather our hearts together in prayer, we're going to sing.